14,111. That's how many more votes President-elect Joe Biden had over lame duck President Donald Trump in the state of Georgia when Georgia's Secretary of State ordered a full recount by hand of every single vote. 1-5-2021. That's the date when Georgia's voters will return to the polls to vote in two runoff elections that would determine control of the United States Senate. 48%. That's the percent of Georgia's population that is non-white, according to recent statistics from the U.S. Census. 13.3%. That's how much of Georgia's population was living in poverty before the COVID-19 economic downturn. Although it's still above the national average, this drop from a high of nearly 20% is one of the sharpest poverty reductions in the nation over the last decade. 2,379. That's the average number of new COVID cases per day in the state of Georgia during the last week, an increase of 22% from the average two weeks earlier. 1945, the year Georgia became the first state in the country to lower the legal voting age from 21 to 18. 25, 25 points. That is the size of the lead the Atlanta Falcons held well into the third quarter of Super Bowl 51 before <coughs> choking and losing in what remains the very definition of an epic fail. Melissa! <laughs> <laughs> Listen, what do you want from me? You know I had to represent for my Saints before we spend an entire episode talking about Georgia. You are so petty. That's so petty. But all right, let's get into it. this episode, we're going to hear from some of the incredible activists organizing on the ground in Georgia. We talk with Ense Ufot, CEO of the New Georgia Project Action Fund, Jenny Castile of the Southern Economic Advancement Project, Aisha Yakub Mahmoud, Executive Director of the Asian American Advocacy Fund, and one of the stars of the WNBA, the Atlanta Dreams' Renee Montgomery joins us. So keep listening because it's time for a system check of Georgia. I'm Dorian Warren. And I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. And this is System Check. Where we talk to the experts to help fix your systemic problems. Okay, I have a confession. Mm, all right, let's hear it. The first time I heard Stacey Abrams speak, I thought she was a little bit out of touch with reality. <laughs> wait, 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 hold on, hold on. What do you mean by that? Listen, I remember it distinctly. So it was July 2016, Philadelphia, the Democratic National Convention. I was traveling with a bipartisan group of two dozen college students called Wake the Vote. Together, we'd taken a bus from our campus in North Carolina and spent four days in Cleveland, Ohio at the Republican National Convention. I mean, we were there and bore witness to the Republican nomination of Donald Trump. Friends, delegates, and fellow Americans, I humbly and gratefully accept your nomination for the presidency of the United States. And 
I have covered many conventions of both parties, but Cleveland was something different. Ohio's Republican Governor John Kasich didn't even attend, and Ted Cruz got booed off the convention floor when he urged Republicans to vote their conscience. If you love our country and love your children as much as I know that you do, stand and speak and vote your conscience, vote for candidates up and down the ticket who you trust to defend our freedom and to be faithful to the Constitution. But more than anything, what I remember is that that usually celebratory atmosphere of a convention was replaced by highly visible handguns of that open carry crowd outside the convention hall. And inside the convention hall, it was all these chants of, lock her up. So I can tell you, the students and I, we were happy when our bus arrived in Philadelphia for the DNC. Spirits were a lot higher. People were excited about Clinton's historic nomination. Our fears. And that is why I am so very proud to stand with this remarkable woman, with the thousands of fellow state legislators, and with each of you as we elect Hillary to be the 45th president of these United States. And on the very first morning we were there, I went with the students to a breakfast. And the breakfast was a theme about women of color in the Democratic Party. Stacey Abrams was on the panel. And I'd been hearing a lot about her, but this was the first time that I'd actually seen her speak in person. And I mean, come on, Dorian, you know how it is when Stacey Abrams speaks, right? She's <laughs> riveting. She's compelling. Mm-hmm. There were some amazing people on this panel, and she was still like a standout. But I have to admit, I was pretty skeptical of what she was saying. I was like, girl, Georgia is going to be a swing state. Are you like, what? And I can remember Steve Phillips, the author of Brown is the New White. He was sitting at the table with me. He leans across and he kind of stage whispers, she's going to be the next governor of Georgia. And I'm like, wait a minute. This, this black woman here, the one with the big voice and the sharp intellect and the biting humor is going to be the governor of Georgia? So I just figured the Democrats had all gone completely nuts because the idea that Georgia is a swing state, that after the Make America Great Again white nationalist gathering I had just witnessed in Ohio, that this black woman was going to be not the mayor of Atlanta, but the governor of Georgia. Come on. That that just that, that made in fact no sense. So right now I am confessing four years later and my husband is really going to love this. I was wrong. <laughs> well, admitting it is the first step to recovery, Melissa. And, and look, you are rarely wrong. And I'm reminded that you did predict the nomination and then the election of Donald Trump in 2016. And there are receipts out there. So check them out. But Steve Phillips and many others were onto something very long ago, right? The entire country is facing south and all eyes are on Georgia. Not only is the Biden-Harris ticket leading Trump-Pence by more than 14,000 votes, but both Georgia Senate races are now heading to runoff scheduled for January 5th, 2021. Georgia is going to decide the balance of national power in the U.S. Senate just two weeks before inauguration. Like Ray Charles famously saying, Georgia is on my mind, Georgia's on your mind, Georgia's on the mind of the whole country. And there are a lot of folks, political consultants, organizers, donors that are on a midnight train to Georgia, as Gladys Knight and the Pips say. Because you know, Melissa, the state is definitely in play. 
so listen, give yourself a break, given the political and racial history of the state of Georgia, because guess what? You had real reason to doubt that this was possible. From the outset, Georgia's raison d'etre was to defend slavery. Yes, there is that little penal colony thing where indebted English prisoners were given an opportunity for freedom and a new start at life when the crown sent them off to North America to steal and quote unquote, settle the land of indigenous peoples. But King George had a more strategic reason for wanting to colonize the vast territory that we now know as Georgia. He needed a British colony to serve as a buffer against Spanish settled Florida to protect the profitable rice plantations of South Carolina. The state of Georgia did much more than protect slavery in the Carolinas though. By the mid 19th century, it was the Southern state with the single greatest number of plantations. The overwhelming loyalty of Georgians to the cause of human bondage and the state's utter economic dependence on enslaved labor is precisely why Union General William Sherman led 60,000 Union soldiers on a 285 mile march from Atlanta to Savannah, looting, liberating, and burning as they went. Sherman's strategy was explicitly meant to break the material support and of course the emotional morale of the slaveholding South. Its capital may have been Richmond, but the heart and soul of the Confederacy was Georgia. Exactly. So this is why, as I'm listening to Abrams speaking at that DNC breakfast in 2016, I was kind of thinking the Georgia's Confederates hadn't even surrendered yet. Mm. I mean, Sherman marched to the sea in 1864, but Margaret Mitchell won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction for Gone with the Wind's romantic depictions of white supremacy in 1937. And Gone with the Wind is still the highest grossing film of all time when you adjust for inflation. And that kind of evil, infectious romanticism about this kind of Georgia racial fiction is so pervasive. You know, Dory, black people will even pay big money to have a wedding on a plantation. Mm. And, and, and think about even the insignias, right? The Confederate flag came down in South Carolina in 2015 after the racist massacre in Charleston. And even Mississippi is replacing its state flag that bears the stars and bars. But the current flag of the state of Georgia is actually a near replica of the real flag of that traitorous Confederate government born of states that seceded in order to preserve slavery. And we don't even have enough time to talk about the largest Confederate monument on the planet up there on Stone Mountain, where the KKK reintroduced itself to the 20th century, or the 1906 Atlanta massacre where white mobs attacked and killed hundreds of black people. And of- right, right, right. Okay, wait, Melissa, well, hold on one minute, because Georgia is steeped in white supremacy and racial domination, but, but there is another Georgia story to be told. How about the AUC, the largest contiguous consortium of black colleges and universities in the country? Black intellectual life is anchored in the heart of Georgia at Morehouse and Spelman and Clark Atlanta. Or what about the difficult but critical movement strategy lessons learned from the Albany movement, the effort to end Jim Crow by residents of that city involving the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the NAACP, and controversially, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1961 and 1962. Or what about Martin Luther King Jr. himself, who (laughs) learned from the strategic failures of that Albany campaign and emerged from Ebenezer Baptist Church 
to guide a social movement that fundamentally altered the racial landscape of America? Or what about four decades of black mayors chosen by an active, engaged black citizenry in Atlanta? And the legacy of black resistance in Georgia, let me be quick to add, is not limited to Metro Atlanta. In the 1920s, Garveyism took hold in Southwest Georgia. In the 1930s, rural black Georgians organized the Negro Farmers League to press for economic justice. And despite brutal Klan violence, black farmers in Southwest Georgia developed indigenous NAACP chapters in the 1940s. And of course, Melissa, there are the black cultural contributions of Georgia. I think of Ray Charles, James Brown, mm. Little Richard, Gladys Knight, mm. TLC, Outkast, Ludacris, T.I., Migos. Hey, 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 Migos? <laughs> now, now you're going to have to stop. But that said, you've actually really helped me to hit on something here. For decades, political observers have pointed to Ohio as the great national bellwether. But perhaps it's Georgia that is quintessentially American. And I mean this in a Du Boisian sense. We can adapt that critical insight of W.E.B. Du Bois in The Souls of Black Folk, written during his time living in Atlanta from 1897 to 1910. One feels Georgia's two-ness. Confederate nostalgia, Black empowerment, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one Southern body politic whose strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. Mm. Well, in the case of Georgia, that strength has a name, Stacey Abrams. You're so, you're right. And, and what I did not understand as I listened to her very bold claims that morning in Philadelphia was that she'd already been laying the groundwork for years through the new Georgia project, registering and educating voters, especially people of color, and talking to ordinary people about the values and issues that matter in their lives. Stacey likes to say that, you know, the South is progressive. It's just that these policies need to be translated into Southern. This is Inse Ufot, CEO of the New Georgia Project Action Fund. She joined System Check this week. It's all about organizing. So New Georgia Project, Stacey started it in 2013. The focus was on Affordable Care Act signups, right? Because Georgia, our state legislature, plan games, they were leaving money on the table, refused to expand Medicaid. And so we had to put feet in the street, boots on the ground in order to get Black folks and folks down in South Georgia to sign up for the Affordable Care Act, open enrollment period, all of that. But I think the analysis was that we were never going to get the kind of health care that we need and the kind of health care that we deserve until we get these unaccountable Republicans out of the state legislature. These people who refuse to listen to the cries of their constituents. And the only way that that was going to happen is if we got folks registered to vote. And when we launched, there were 1.2 million Black and Latino and Asian American Georgians who were eligible to vote and completely unregistered. Right. So they weren't on the, they weren't on nobody's voter file. They weren't in vote builder. They weren't in NGP van. So they weren't getting cut as a part of people's list. Right. They were completely unregistered and somebody had to register. them. So this insight from NSA helped me to connect the dots. Getting folks registered is not just about a single election cycle. Once their names go on those official voter rolls, 
They're part of the system. Campaigns for candidates and campaigns for issues. They all buy these voter lists from third parties like Vote Builder or NGP Van. These lists guide who and how a campaign makes contact, who gets calls, who gets texts, who gets a knock on the door. The new Georgia project brought a million new people into the system. The former slave states, let's just keep it a buck. When I think about like the violence of voter suppression and the violence of like the anti-democratic practices that are pervasive, a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, that is how a, a minority maintains control over the majority. Right. So Mississippi is black AF. Right. Alabama is black AF. Right. But because of this sort of scheme of voter suppression and, you know, racist policing that that disenfranchised formerly incarcerated people, like all of this works together to shrink the electorate so that elected officials are choosing their voters. So here's what people need to know. Much has been written about the browning of America, right? The demographic shift that the entire country is going through. But nowhere is that sort of demographic shift happening more acutely than in Georgia, right? Nearly 2 million people have moved to the state in the, ba- in the past decade, and 80% of them are people of color. If we just let demographics do what it does, then people universally agreed and acknowledged that Georgia would be a swing state by 2028. We believed that 2018 was the year and the difference maker was organizing, right? That we were organizing, that we were building independent, progressive, Black-centered political infrastructure. And Part of what makes this organizing work so unique is that it started with a policy, Obamacare, or otherwise known as the Affordable Care Act, or ACA. And it was ACA signups that led to registering people to vote. And let's be clear, this is not, this is not how most people do grassroots organizing. This is a very different model, using policy to build power, using policy to build infrastructure, and using policy to expand the electorate and thus expand what's possible. Well, I, what I will tell you is that it has it's been a muscle that we've had to build because I absolutely want to talk about minim- the minimum wage. I absolutely want to talk about the fact that half of Georgia's counties don't have any OBGYNs, right? I absolutely want to talk about the fact that they are building two new nuclear power plants in Georgia, in black communities in Georgia, and there haven't been any new nuclear power plants built anywhere in America in 30 years. And so I wanna talk about all of these things that need to be fixed, but we can't do any of it unless we have power, unless we have people in the state legislature and in DC who will co-govern with us, right? Who are accountable to our communities and who know that we have the ability to hire them and the ability to fire them, right? And so getting Georgians to believe that, getting Black folks to believe that, getting Black folks in rural Georgia to believe that has been our work over the past seven years. And now we're here. And with the New Georgia Project Action Fund, it's not just what they do, it's how they do it. Insay explained the important community-centered Georgia flavor they bring to all the work they do. 
So it's a couple of things, right? Just even in our meetings. I mean, this is a lot of this is pre-COVID, but you know, if we are in church basements in Decatur, or if we're on a, a Vidalia onion farm down in South Georgia, we don't have any meetings where we don't have food, music, and childcare. All of our meetings. If it's five people, if it's 500 people, we are going to feed everyone. There is going to be music and we will have childcare. We link up with the domestic workers, the National um, Domestic Workers Association. So, you know, people are certified and bonded. We know that they love children and we put money in their pockets because we pay above, uh, you know, the going rate. And so that is a part of the culture of membership in what we are building. Right. Number one. Number two, it's really important for us to meet people where we are. So uh, on Election Day, we had this uh, activation called Twitch the Vote, which was a live stream. We had uh, half a million unique viewers to come in and see our content. We were on the front page of Twitch. And I'm really proud of that because AOC was one of the first people to like hop on the Twitch. And she had 600,000 folks. And the, we people don't know who we are. Uh, we don't have nearly the brand recognition, the name recognition that she does. And, you know, we had, you know, half a million people come in and hear what we had to say. And so, you know, we build our own video games. We build a mobile app that's a, basically an SOS uh, alert system. So you're at the polls. They tell you you're not on the voter rolls or you're in a crazy long line. You open up the New Georgia Project app. You, we know where you are, so we have the GPS coordinates. And so we can send election protection attorneys. We can send line warmers. In 2020, you know, we hired and deployed 100 DJs, stilt walkers, drag queens to the polls to entertain people while they were in line, right? Because here's the thing. We know that they were coming with the bullshit. We knew that people were going to have to wait in lines. We can we regularly make history or make the news for having people wait in line eight, nine, 10 hours to vote. So if until we're able to get a new secretary of state, until we're able to get new county commissioners and new county board of elections officials, we're going to take care of our people. We're going to feed you. We're going to give you music. And if you need somebody to hold your baby while you're going in and vote, we got you on that as well. Right. In addition to our army of attorneys. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, we fight in the court of public opinion, like trying to shape narratives and do better about that. But we also fight in actual court. So we filed a whole bunch of lawsuits leading up to the election. And it is a tactic. It's not our whole strategy, but it is a tactic that we use to try to make sure that every vote gets counted. Food, music and childcare, Twitch, video games and mobile apps, lawsuits and drag shows at the polls. This is how you turn Georgia Blue. Get, get, get your booty to the pole, 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 get your booty to the pole. Yeah. So, for example, hold on a second, Stacy is bothering me. So that's Nse Ufat. She's executive director of the New Georgia Project Action Fund, and she was checking an incoming text message from Stacey Abrams during her interview with Dorian and me. Because even with Biden and Harris well over the 270 hurdle, Georgia organizers like Abrams and Ufat cannot take a well-earned rest. Why? Because both of Georgia's U.S. Senate races are now in runoffs and will decide the balance of power in Washington, D.C., Democratic candidate John Ossoff will face GOP incumbent Senator Dave Perdue 
And on the other side, Democratic candidate Reverend Raphael Warnock, senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. (laughs) Yep, that Ebenezer will face GOP incumbent Senator Kelly Loeffler. Now, Kelly Loeffler is the co-owner of Atlanta's WNBA team and the richest member of the U.S. Senate, estimated to be worth half a billion dollars. So the infrastructure of Georgia's organizing stays on the grind. And there's one powerful presence continuing to motivate, mobilize, and direct that grind. Stacey is bothering me. Now, of course, Ensei doesn't actually see Abrams as a bother. It's just funny to us that Abrams showed up in this interview because she was such a powerful presence in every conversation we had with all the organizers in Georgia. Being an alum of Stacey Abrams' leadership and just under her mentorship has been that to not only echo the needs that are happening in the urban areas like Atlanta, like when people want to claim that they're in Atlanta, but they live in Kennesaw. Like these are the things that joke is going to, it's going to hit for the folks who live in Kennesaw. I promise you. But um, it's this idea to step outside of what we know and go to the places and meet the people where they are. That was Ginny Castillo. She is Regional Engagement Director for the Southern Economic Advancement Project in Atlanta, Georgia. Prior to this role, she worked as Director of Latinx Outreach on Stacey Abrams' 2018 gubernatorial campaign. Under Castillo's leadership, voter turnout in Latinx communities increased by 213% and flipped one of Georgia's most diverse counties, Gwinnett. And now this is Aisha Yaqub Mahmoud. She is the executive director of the Asian American Advocacy Fund in Georgia. And she was a candidate for the Georgia House of Representatives in 2018. Even though she was unsuccessful in her bid in this heavily Republican district, she's continued to work as an effective organizer in Georgia's Asian American communities. Seeing a strong woman of color, a black woman leading the charge, it, it just kind of gave me hope that, you know, Georgia was was finally moving in the right direction where potentially they could see someone like me um, elect to the state house. So uh, I talked it over with my family. I was actually also getting married in 2018. So I had to really talk to my family about that one because I was planning a wedding and running for office at the same time. But ultimately, I think I decided to do it because of what was at stake, you know, looking at what was happening at the national level with the Trump administration and the increased scrutiny on immigrant communities, the increased immigration enforcement that was happening. There was so much that our state legislature could be doing to protect our communities, but weren't. Aisha Yaqub Mahmoud and Ginny Castillo represent the cadre of young Southern leaders, motivated, inspired, nurtured, and developed by Stacey Abrams. Now, Ginny and Aisha are building lasting coalitions of organized citizens working to improve the economic, social, and political conditions of Georgia's increasingly diverse communities. SEEP focuses on going to these areas to have these conversations, these listening tours about what's happening because everything's Atlanta, everything. But the work is happening in in Gwinnett County and Hall County and Whitfield County in these areas that people aren't going to because like it's too far from Atlanta. It's too far from the capital. But that's where our, our Black farmers are, right? One of the biggest and most important suburbs right now in the dialogue is Gwinnett County. Gwinnett County is about 28 to 32 miles, depending what part of Gwinnett you're going to from Atlanta. And it is home of the most diverse 
electorate. We have Latinx. The largest growing Latinx population is in Gwinnett County. The largest growing um, AAPI population is in Gwinnett County. It is uh, a truly majority minority county. And we are now seeing the fruits of that, right? We see that Black women were elected to be the chair. Nicole Love Henderson was just elected. And it is it is a changing demographic. Jenny's insights reveal the ineffectiveness of Trump's strategy of trying to appeal to, quote unquote, the suburbs as the largely white conservative enclave of his 1980s fueled imagination. These suburban white women are not the only ones there, y'all. Like a lot of people like free parking. That's why I live in the suburbs. Because <laughs> you can go anywhere, don't have to pay for parking. That is why I love a burb. But it is more than just this dialogue that it is separate from. It is an extension from the city, right? It is still some parts of the suburban areas also don't get as many of the resources as other parts of the area. So, and especially in Georgia, my friends, you can drive a whole hour and still be in one county. That's how vast and grand these counties are and these suburbs are because it's not just a small white community. It is multicultural, multilingual, multigenerational. And we're seeing that. And the flip that happened is showing that exactly that the trends are changing and a lot more people are going to move to the suburbs y'all. because let me tell you, the city's expensive. And organizers like Jenny and Aisha are checking the systems in Georgia. They're zeroing in on the system failures that keep their communities from participating. Even as they engage in consciousness-building conversations, they create clear, practical remedies to address the existing systems. The use of absentee voting has really helped, you know, to kind of cut back on the election day issues. But even within our communities, the biggest hurdles are still accessing absentee ballots because of the language issues. And, and just because of the it's just such a hard process to do, even for someone who speaks English, you know. So our work has really been to not just provide information to voters about absentee voting and, and send them applications and follow up with them, but to really answer questions that they have about how, how this process works. You know, we filmed instructional videos on on how to complete your absentee ballot and where to sign it and how to make sure your signature matches the one that's on your driver's license so that your ballot does not get rejected. Um, we answered questions about, you know, who is eligible to vote by mail, which in Georgia, anyone can vote by mail. We answered questions about early voting and, and what it, you know, who's eligible to go vote early because sometimes people don't also realize those answers. So combined with all of the attention that was on vote by mail this year, the, the, the biggest hurdle still this year for our voters was not having translated information to do that absentee process. So that was really our biggest um, service to the community was breaking that down and making it more accessible. Yes, voting is foundational. But the work these organizers do is expansive, identifying where interlocking systems lack points of access for those who need them most. And Melissa, I was struck by the commitment they share to doing this work in partnership with communities, not just on behalf of these communities. Here's the thing about the South. You are a visitor. And a lot of times these organizers that are coming from other states are like, just tell me everything. Let's write it down and let's get it done. That's not how it works here. When you go visit somebody, you sit with them. That's the thing. You have to sit and you have to make sure that you're listening to them. Another thing that works is making sure that where 
providing spaces for people to grow. It's not just an organizer thing or a policy thing. It's what is your input, right? When you invite are invited to someone's home in the South, they are going to give you the tea, literally. They're going to give you sweet tea. <laughs> they're going to give you hot tea. And they're going to want to ask you a lot of questions. How are you? How are you doing? What else have you been doing? So I think that's what it is. There's always has to be a, a sense of hospitality when it comes to organizing and investment, but also investment, investment in the South, investment in Georgia, early investment. I don't know why we have to keep having the conversation that it's always investment in August or investment in October or investment November 1st when the election or event is November 2nd. There needs to be constant investment and there needs to be focused attention, right? I think what is working is all of our organizations that are doing this work year round. And it's not its not a part of the electoral process. We don't get state funding for it. You know, th this work is not led by the states by any means, but we do this work day in and day out because we know how important it is to further the needs of our community and to, to build on this democracy. The multiracial coalitions that we have built are working. The intersectional work that we're doing is working. We live in Georgia, so we have to be multiracial and multi-ethnic and intersectional. We cannot be focused just entirely on one community because at one point in time, we, we didn't have the numbers, so we couldn't be just so internally focused. Clearly, these women are both sophisticated, experienced, insightful organizers. But scratch the surface a little, and you'll find an almost fangirl enthusiasm and a deep personal appreciation for Stacey Abrams at the foundation. Here's Aisha Yacoub Mahmoud. My dad was Stacey Abrams' biggest champion. And I think it's because he saw that I was kind of in her footsteps, I guess. And he, to this day, asks me, you know, if I can get Stacey Abrams to show up to this event or to that event, because he saw that, right? She came in, into our community and, and she not just campaigned in our communities, but showed up and, and talked to our people and listened to our community's needs in a way that no politician ever had before. He doesn't like ask you for birthday parties, does he? Like, can no, you get her on the family um, I, Zoom? <laughs> but you know, he did ask if I could invite her to my wedding. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I did. I did. I did invite her. But, you know, she was still fighting for um, fighting for her election yeah. at that time. So and Jenny Castillo. So I'm going to try not to cry because I get super emotional talking about my best friend. <laughs> I tell everybody I'm I'm her best friend. And funnily enough, Stacey actually has many books, so it's incredible. You all can take these with you as well. And I'm page 63 of her first book. So just putting it out there. Have a whole page. <laughs> page 63. And it's from the tippy top of 63 over to 65. So y'all, that is significant, okay? That is significant. <laughs> I call her Leader Abrams. That's, you know, that was what we called her when we were in the General Assembly. But she is that, la leader, I actually say in Spanish, la leader, because she is, she is that in everything that she does. And I think one of the biggest, biggest parts, both personally and professionally, is that Leader Abrams always does something for the support of somebody else that's coming after her. 
There's never been a chance that she's just doing it for her name. She's doing it for the sake of Georgia. She's doing it for the sake of Black women, of Latina women, of uh, all women. Like, it's just incredible just to see how she interacts with people. And one of the biggest things that she says, and if when she hears this, she's like, oh, gosh. But it's one of the things that, that served me the most is that when someone calls her, she says, how can I help? And just asking that question changes the dynamics of what that conversation looks like. If you want to understand the true quality of leader, notice if her people invoke her name unsolicited and listen carefully to what they say when she's not around. Every single person we talked to invoked Abrams with genuine respect, admiration, love, and a true Southern sisterhood of familiarity that reveals Abrams as a truly egalitarian, ego-free leader. <laughs> Completely agreed, Melissa, but I'm pretty sure we learned that Stacey Abrams is always around. <laughs> <laughs> Stacey is bothering me. What if I told you there's a podcast that delivers all the real, none of the fake, can make you laugh and give you hope all at the same time? My dear friend, Alicia Garza, co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, has a podcast called Lady Don't Take No. Lady Don't Take No has been my weekly dose of the most authentic conversations and hilarity all through this pandemic. Alicia talks to creators, thought leaders, and activists that I admire so much. And she makes them feel so relatable. I feel like I gain a new friend every week. She's talked to Erica Huggins, Laverne Cox, Angelica Ross, the list goes on. But I have to tell you, do not sleep on Alicia's weekly roundup of all the things she just can't take anymore. And all the things she loves because this list is giving me life. The podcast is my weekly medicine, delivering what I need to hear and leaving me energized. And in 2020, that is no small feat. I'd say the only thing I'm not sure of with Lady Don't Take No is why I haven't been a guest yet. Alicia, are you listening? Now that you know, you know what to do. Listen and subscribe to Lady Don't Take No with Alicia Garza on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts for new episodes every Friday morning where you used to have a commute. So let's take this analysis and turn it into action. Here is this week's system checklist. First, help us make a playlist. <laughs> a playlist inspired by the work Georgia has already done and the work Georgia is tasked with doing between now and the January 5, 2021 runoff. Think of this as a kind of sonic organizing tool to remind the people of Georgia they are not alone. Georgia is on all of our minds as we try to save and strengthen American democracy. Share your choices to our Twitter and our Facebook, 
at System Check Pod on Twitter and Facebook.com slash System Check Pod. All one word. Second, even if you are not in Georgia, you can experience the wise counsel and learn the key strategies of Stacey Abrams by checking out her two best selling political strategy books Lead from the Outside how to build your future and make real change. And our time is now power, purpose, and the fight for a fair America. Read them, give them as gifts and follow the advice. Number three, remember election 2020 is not over. Contribute your time, talent, and treasure in whatever ways you can to the efforts to expand democracy and sustain voter mobilization in Georgia all the way through and past January 5. And number four, start at home. You don't have to live in Georgia to be part of a meaningful movement. Look for the organizers, organizations doing the work in your neighborhood, your community, your state, wherever you live. Find out how you can get involved and make a difference in your own backyard. And then send us a note on social media and let us know about the amazing work you're doing to check the systems that affect your life. And stick with us. We're about to get a final word. Renee looks for number six. Got it. Ties a career high. Driving. Knocked away. Got it back. Scoops it to Montgomery. Seven. Yes. Boy, is she dialed in or what? You are listening to the sound of WNBA Atlanta Dream Star Renee Montgomery dropping a career-high seven three-pointers against the New York Liberty during a 2018 game. Renee Montgomery is the kind of player who simply wins, wins, wins everywhere she goes. The 5.7 point guard from West Virginia was a round one draft pick coming out of the storied UConn women's basketball program. She arrived while UConn was still rebuilding after losing the senior starter who took them to three back-to-back national championships. In Montgomery's senior year, they won another national championship. In 2017, she won a WNBA national championship with the Minnesota Lynx. She came to Atlanta, Georgia in 2018 to play for the dream. And it's here in Georgia that Renee Montgomery discovered she wanted to be part of a different kind of team, pursuing a different kind of victory. This is going to be big. That's kind of what I was thinking. So I wanted to be a part of blowing it up and making it even bigger. So the concept of moments equal momentum, it was me adding my moment to this movement and just creating more momentum. And so I wanted people to understand that everybody has a part in it. Like you can do something and create your moment that's going to add to this momentum. And then you do something. And it's kind of like the idea of everybody just do your part and we got, we'll have the ball rolling. We'll have something good going. So I I use that and I kind of use that mentality and I've been working ever since to try to just create momentum and create different moments and more moments. The movement is the movement for black lives. The moment was June of this year when Renee Montgomery, WNBA player, analyst, host, millennial speaker, proud UConn champion and head of the Renee Montgomery Foundation, chose to set out the impending season beginning in August. Renee watched from her home in Buckhead, Georgia, seeing the uprising of ordinary folk taken to the streets in the wake of police slayings of unarmed black women and men like Ahmaud Arbery earlier this year. She called her mother, who had lived through the Detroit uprising of 1967. Yeah, so my snookabooka, that's what I call my mom, my snook. 
there were a lot of, of action going on around me. You know, the the protests moved from downtown to where I live. And so I'm just looking around and I, I see everything that's going on. So, of course, I'm calling my parents. I got to talk to them. Like, what should I do? What's going on? And just my snook's calmness was like the first thing I noticed. Like she it didn't face her at all. Like she was not the least bit concerned. So I just asked her, like, so so what like what's the deal? Like what should I do? And she's like, Oh, don't worry. Like that's fine. Just when people don't feel that their voices are heard, they have to make it felt. In that moment, Montgomery understood the way she was connected to a long history of struggle. A struggle she had brushed up against in her own life. After all, Montgomery was a sophomore at UConn in two thousand seven. The year conservative talk show host Don Imus called the players of the Rutgers women's team, quote, nappy headed hoes. As black and brown women, WNBA players are not shielded from the harsh realities of racism and sexism by great wealth. Indeed, the average WNBA salary is about $75,000 a year. Not just women, but black women have been here. We've, we've been we've been at this intersection of we get it. You know, our league is comprised of 80% minority. We get it. We already been got it, but there's that nurturing, maybe nature mode that you kicks in that like, no, 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 we're not going to let this happen. Like we're going to say something. And I think that kicks in. And also, I just think that we're just not afraid. And I think there's a lot of people that would say something, but there's things that they're afraid of happening if they do. And at this point, I think the WNBA players, as well as myself, we've showed that we're just not afraid of what comes with what we say. That courage, that groundedness, that determination is why Renee Montgomery gets today's final word. Listen, in June, I would have had no idea that all eyes would have been right here, you know, and it's just it's that leap of faith that I was talking about where I felt something big was happening. So now that this is happening and there is a runoff in the Senate, I almost feel like, duh, of course, you opted out for this. Like, you know what I mean? It almost feels like I'm I'm here and this is right. And so because all of these things are lining up, then I'm definitely going to keep on doing my part to, to add to the momentum. So I'm going to, again, I know people are tired and I know people are like, oh my gosh, y'all done told us to vote till we don't want to hear the word vote anymore. I know people don't want to see no more campaigns. They don't want to see anything else about ballots. They don't want to hear about it, but it ha- well, you have to. Like, I don't either. Like, you know, if we're being honest, I don't I wish we didn't have to to keep begging people to vote. And I wish we didn't have to keep banging the drum. But I'm going to because I think it's that important. And I think that we have to make sure that we all know it's that important. So I'm going to be here banging my drum until January 5th, just because all eyes are on Georgia. And I don't know. I kind of like it. I think I think Georgia stood up last time and we can do it again. And that does it for this episode of System Check. It was a big one. <laughs> it was a lot, <laughs> Melissa. Next week, we will be checking the system of poverty in this country. I am so ready for this conversation because it is crucial, absolutely mm. necessary. So, everybody, remember to share this episode and the other two, if you'd like, with your friends, with your family, with your social media networks. Remember for yourself, click, subscribe, rate it, and remember to listen next week because we are going to tackle the system of poverty. I'm Melissa Harris Perry. And I'm Dorian Warren. And you've been listening to System Check. Yeah. 
System Check is a project of The Nation, hosted by me, Melissa Harris-Perry, and Dorian Warren, and produced by Sophia Steinert-Evoy. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Didi Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Erin O'Mara is president of The Nation. And our theme music is by Brooklyn-based artist and producer, Jackery. Support for System Check comes from Omidyar Network, a social change venture that is reimagining how capitalism should work. Learn more about their efforts to recenter our economy around individuals, community, and societal well-being at omidyar.com. Now, the best way to show your love for this show is to subscribe online to the nation's print and digital magazine at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. Join the fight for the once unthinkable progressive ideas that are now mainstream. 80% off for our podcast listeners at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. And as always, if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.